Here at Robo Toy Fest 2021 with the boss, Lauren Stone. Lauren, how did everything go today? Dude, it is so nice out here. Um, we are so grateful that people are ready to come out, uh, that you know that everyone's doing it safely, that people just want to have a good time and collect toys and celebrate um, conventions again. And so it's been really, how do I put it? It's been a little bit uncertain in this climate, not knowing what to expect, but um, yeah, we're absolutely thrilled by the results. Hi, this is Francois Chow. Perfect. Here at uh, Robo Toy Fest 2021, with dare I say an international man of mystery. Sure, why not? You can call me that. <laughs> Here with actor Frank Francois Chow. That's it. A little bit of context. You played the. Uh, the notorious villain Shredder in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. That was Secret of the Ooze. You played Quick Kick um, in the Sunbow series G.I. Joe. Uh, you're going way back now. Yeah, both of those are it's been a while, but yeah. You know, when I've talked to actors about uh, that Sunbow series being involved, usually they say that. Uh, you know, it not only launched careers, but lifelong friendships. Uh, what would you say about the Sunbow series? Well, I think my introduction into that series was uh, pretty much, uh, that was the first, that, actually that was my first gig when I got to Los Angeles. And uh, my first voiceover gig. So pretty much thrown into the deep end of the pool, as it were, because I, I showed up and there's Keone and all these other voice actors who have been, you know, who are like, who have been doing it for so long and are, are masters at it. And I was just like, uh, you know, point me in the direction and just tell me what to do and <laughs> I'll try to do it, kind of thing. That's fairly modest. I do know I, people love Quick Kick. Yeah, I mean, it was a, you know, it was a fun part and, uh, I guess my my uh, ability to do bad impressions of wow, it's been so long now that I don't think people even remember what those movie stars, who those movie stars were, like uh, Humphrey Bogart or you know guys like that. You know. True. You even had time to sneak in an episode of the uh, sci-fi cult classic, The Invisible Man. Am I right? Yes, 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 yes. I was the. Uh, oh, remember that? I think I was sort of like a. I think it was like a, the, the Chinese James Bond <laughs> that, that showed up, yeah. Hey, there's Invisible Man fans out there. You can't see him, but they're out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just saw him a couple of last month at a Costco. <laughs> Why not? I think uh, any fan of Mysteries knows you from Lost. Yes. Was it Dr. Marvin Candle or Edgar uh, Hallowax? Edgar Hallowax or, or uh, Mark Wickman. Uh, I think if it, the series had gone on, uh, they would have had to think up with some more names with uh, Wax and Candle and all that stuff in there. But. Well, I gotta ask, were you a fan of Mysteries before you worked on Lost? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it was. Uh, I'm a big fan of most stuff, sci-fi, westerns, uh, anything. I'm a huge television fan, huge movie fan. I've, I've probably watched more stuff than most people will ever watch. Well, I think. I mean, obviously, opinions are going to vary, but um, the Hatch, the videotapes, that was peak lost. What your opinion? It's one of those things that come along that you, I just sort of kind of ride the wave because I, I didn't really. I was like, whoa, what's 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 going on here? Well, <laughs> kind of. I'll just do whatever whatever they tell me and. Uh, Whether it was the videotapes yeah. or the uh, journals that ended up in the middle of a field. Right. Uh, right. That was a gut punch, wasn't it? That was. Uh, yeah. That was like, what is what is happening? Why? <laughs> Tell you this, my family watched every episode. I was reading the books Sawyer was reading. It was bad. Oh, wow. I know. Oh, wow. Let me ask you this. Being born in Cambodia, living in Vietnam, I'm going to do this off memory. Uh, Africa's in there. Yes. France is in there. Yes. And now here you are on the West Coast. Take your time on this one. You can be esoteric if you like. What's the greatest mystery you've solved on that journey? I guess the greatest mystery is that uh, why am I, why me? Why am I lucky enough to head all this stuff? All voices on the record are considered high profile by Cobra Command. Welcome to the final level. Here at uh, Long Beach Comic Con 2019 with Greg Baldwin, an actor. You've done the voice for a Jedi Master? I have indeed. I was uh, Master Terrace Bay in Clone Wars. And all, I was a bunch of characters in Clone Wars. I was a space pirate in Clone Wars. I was a bounty hunter. And I was Jedi Master Terrace Sinubay as well. There it is. That is, and you know, there's, there's a trick to this voice. Because this voice, if you listen to it closely, frequently when you're voice acting, people will do, you will start off with an impression of another actor. And all I say, listen to Terrace Nube and then go back and watch the very first two Harry Potter movies and listen to Richard Harris as Dumbledore, and you will definitely notice the similarities. You're definitely making friends right now. You've also been the voice of Aku on Samurai Jack. That is correct. Yes, foolish motto, that is correct. That's some heavy lifting. But I have to ask you about a voice that you did in a city that people have never forgotten. You were Frank Fontaine, the pivotal uh, antagonist. That is correct. In Bioshock, which was game of the year several times over. I was, I, 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 love, I honestly, I think Bioshock is quite possibly one of the greatest games, if not the greatest game. My only regret, as I was telling you, I was never able to play the game, everyone else gets to play the game. Because I had recorded it and I already knew about the twist that was coming. And I would love to have been able to play the game and then gone, oh my god, I can't believe it, Atlas is Fontaine. Oh, oh. Spoiler alert, sorry folks. Yeah, thanks a lot. I know. Uh, just for a second, take your mind back to Rapture. I know Fontaine was always trying to work an angle, but uh, what do you remember about the streets of Rapture? Was, uh, ominous and claustrophobic even. You might describe it as such. But it was a good place to do business. 
Yeah, you did. <laughs> G.I. Joe podcaster, also a staple at Golden Apple Comics. Staple. Mm-hmm. A few years back, you said that you were on top of your podcast game. I was. But when I see you now, it appears your powers have doubled. My power oh, doubled. I did, that means I didn't understand the heights of my game. I appreciate that. I feel good, yeah. Obviously breaking off G.I. Joe podcasts. Lately, you've covered Snake Eyes Origins. We did. Mm-hmm. We did. Snake Eyes Dead Games. Snake Eyes, uh, yes I did. <laughs> Which is one of the, and of course we're going to throw a link to those pods. That's an amazing podcast, brother. Thank you. I, I, I've gotten some good feedback on that. I appreciate you, I appreciate you saying so. And of course we did get Extreme. Extreme! Nice. Yeah. Modern G.I. Joe, right? Yeah. What have they not gotten right? Are we talking toys? Or are we talking movie? Because there's a lot going on right now. The, 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 the overall rightness is that there's a lot to talk about. So let's start positive. They've, there's a lot to talk about, and that's exciting. There's toys, multiple lines of toys. There's the movie. There's a new cartoon supposedly happening. They're talking about doing the TV show with Lady J. Who knows? You know. So that's all good. You're talking like a consumer. Talk like a critic. So, well, yeah, individually like a critic, there have been you know some misfires. I think the availability of the toys is disappointing. To not have those toys on shelves in mass quantities when the movie comes out is disappointing from a growth perspective. Let's talk. Let's talk narrative side. Whether we're talking a dead game. Okay. Well, what is one thing that they have to get right about Joe for it to work for you? It needs to be about Joe versus Cobra. You know, like going back to the basics of it, going back to the roots of it. Uh, let's get in. Let, let's get some Joe versus Cobra stuff going on. You know, um, there's a there's a desire to want to branch out and get you know do all these side villains and side stuff and new this and new that. But you know what? Joe versus Cobra is what sells me on the brand and seeing them foil each other and seeing these wild personalities clash, you know, on a one-to-one level. That's what works for me. I think what puts me off is like, I don't need to know the origin of Snake Eyes, but you know, if you want to go Tiger Force, well, that's fine. Yeah, well, so we're talking movie. I, that's still not the origin of Snake Eyes. Just to broad, broad stroke it, that's still not the origin of Snake Eyes. You end up with a dude who has about a week's worth of ninja training and is named Snake Eyes. He's not scarred. He's, he's not, as far as we know, he doesn't have any commando training. Uh, he, he gets, he's given that suit in the last 10 seconds of the movie. But come on. Like, not it's not Snake Eye. That's not a. It's it's a story about a dude who ran around around some ninjas for two hours, which was a fun movie. It was fun. The performances were actually really really great. But I I, I can't consider that an origin of Snake Eyes. I think when I'm looking at the brand nowadays, they, they seem to be obsessed with the same five characters every time. Yes, that's a huge problem. For me, like, on the Joe team, the 100th person on the roster is as dangerous as the first person. They are. I asked this of a friend of mine who knows a little bit about a little bit, and the basic idea is if you can't get the big ones to sell early, then the, the lines, whatever the product is, whether it's you know, a new Funko line or a, a new miniature figure line or a die cast line. 
they, they always start with those main guys because those need to sell well in order to, to dive deep into the into the roster. That may or may not be true, but it is disappointing because we just keep seeing the main the same dudes over and over and over again. I get that they want to play up archetypes, but it seems like counterintuitively, GI Joe is one of those brands where you can go deep cut. You should. The biggest seller this in recent history was a, a comic about uh, an undercover agent, uh, Chuckles. Chuckles. Oh yeah, that Chuckles stuff was great. Yeah, like why? Here's a question for real. Why wasn't Chuck? Why have we're 27 characters in? If you're paying attention to what the fans love in the last 10 years, that Chuckles storyline lit everybody up. Chuckles should have been one of the classified characters. You get an agent Chuckles in there as an undercover G.I. Joe guy, that's huge. That's a great figure. It's a great looking figure. You could even do the Zartan thing and give him a, give him a couple face masks or something like that, you know? But Chuckles would be a great character. The fact that they did uh, barbecue is awesome. That was a good step in the right direction, you know? Uh, and see Breaker. Uh, you know, to touch on those originals, but yeah, there's such a deep roster. Where's Shipwreck? Where's uh, Toilet Teal? Where's where is Toilet Teal? Where's Old Style? Where's Old Style? Where's uh, you know, where's Shipwreck? Where's uh, uh, Bazooka? Last time I checked, we're in the trenches right now, brother. I, I'm ready for that movie. But you did mention Zartan. I don't want to leave out the Dreadnoughts. So yeah. Why don't we go back to simpler times? Accessing archive data 2019. Previously on Joe on Joe on Cujo? Joe on Cujo on Joe. Thank you for sorting that out. Cujo on Joe. Cujo on Joe. Dude, you're fresh off of a tour de force of a podcast. Thank you. Known as... Old Slither behind the rock. That's not only an achievement of narrative, but coordination, am I right? Yes, yeah. We uh, 15 voice actors. Including? Uh, including Morgan Lofting herself, the Baroness. There it is. From four different continents. That's right. Five different countries. Uh, I try to get as authentic, uh, like authentic Australian, authentic English. Our, our friend Ross, who played Buzzer, is literally from the town that Buzzer is from. So I'm like, of course, you're doing your hometown accent. Um, yeah, so uh, plus we had live music for the, the band, Hot as Hell out of Chicago. Um, they just destroyed with their cover of Coast Slither. I mean, it was, I, I'm really proud of it. I hope everyone enjoyed it and shared it and passed it along. It's, uh, it was a real labor of love. Definitely got spun on social media. For sure. Um, also including Steven Jubber. Yeah, Steve Jubber from, from yeah. G.I. Joeberg. G.I. Joeberg was my Zartan. Carrying on that legacy. When I was working on it, I was I was work, literally working on my casting. And I was surfing the internet trying to figure out who was playing what. And I in, in one of the Joeberg videos came up and I heard him doing Zartan. And I was like, well, I know Steve. Of, of course he's going to be my Zartan. Of course he's going to be my Zartan. How can he not be Zartan? It was a nice reach. Oh, he was great. Uh, what about the come down, though? You have, you have a victory. But you're an indie creator, which means that... So it's about the next hustle, man. It's about the next hustle. I know, I know. For me, creatively, and this goes back to everything, I used, I mean, I've drawn, I've made my own, you know, it's like self-published comics. Like, I've, 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 I did comic strips in college. I actually like the, I like the learning of the new. And, I, and, and so I like to do something a little different every time with every project, because... You know, we only have so many in, in us, you know what I mean? Yes. So, so 
yeah, I'm really excited about doing something uh, a little bit, a little bit to the left, but also I, I really think Joe and Joe fans are going to enjoy it. It's world, it's more world building. Let's put it that way. One more time for the cheap seats. Where can people find you online? Oh man, go to at Joe on Joe Pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Here at Robo Toy Fest 2021. This is not the first time we've spoken. How are you doing, Jamie? Good. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. I think it's been two years since we've chatted. You've done tons of Joe art. Oh, we get, we've spoke. We've spoke on it. Yeah. And an artist can do great work, but it's not always going to arrive if there's not a good team. And every time I've talked to you, uh-huh. you've always had a partner with you. Yeah. Yeah. This is Erin, my wife. Um, Slash slave driver. Yeah, she's a she cracks the whip all the time. Yeah, I keep him chained to his table. That's how we get all this Joe art. Solid. My questions are short, but convention life. How has it treated you over these many years? I mean, I married into it, so it was kind of a given, I guess. But you know, with him in the industry, it's it's fun. We have our con family and. We do shows. It's a lot of work, but you know we love it. It's so exciting. It's exciting. So, so exciting. in for the Christmas card, guys. <laughs> Last question. You wouldn't uh-huh. want to see our Christmas card <laughs> there. It was me and my underwear on a wampa rug. Oh my god. <laughs> well, you're kind of selling me, brother. Yeah, it really was. Uh, it was fabulous. Life with an artist. Put a couple mm-hmm. sentences on it. <laughs> That's keep, all you. We keep different hours. Like, he hates it that I go to bed at 8 o'clock because I get up at, like, 6 a.m., but he's up until 5 a.m. drawing, and then he sleeps. And then wakes me up at 6 a.m. And then I wake why him are up. You, why aren't you getting up? <laughs> why aren't you getting up? I don't know, because it's up to you know, it's drawing. So, it's, it's different, especially with someone who's self-deprecating, like Jamie, who hates all of his own stuff. And he's like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And I honestly say every time, I think it's amazing. And he's like... There's plenty of people out there that hate it too. (laughs) Not just me. (laughs) But he's like, you need to give me your honest opinion. And I'm like, my honest opinion is that it's amazing. Like, you wouldn't be working in the industry if your stuff wasn't good. That's... I'm going to tell you right now, that's the worst thing that, like, a family or a friend, friend can do when you ask them for opinion on work is blow smoke up your ass because you don't get better. If they, if you don't get an honest critique about something. Listen, you're legally blind in one eye and you're still drawing all the stuff that you're drawing. So, I I mean. Which means I have one eye. It's not like I'm drawing in 3D. No, but still, I mean, he wears a patch over his left eye to be able to see. Yeah, sometimes blue painter's safe. That's another story. I'm trying to be snake whiskey. (laughs) Guys. It's been a pleasure. How many times have we chatted? Four? Oh, oh yeah, four or five. Every, every con, I think, right? Another than just this place. We've yeah. Always a pleasure, guys. Always. Yeah, always. It's Jamie good Sullivan. to finally be back and see everybody. Right? Jamie Sullivan, cover artist, G.I. Joe. You were a master. Yes, sir. Here with Keone Young, a veteran of the game. A few years ago, NBC News said for over 50 years, you were an outsider on the inside of Hollywood. Yep. You've done stuff from Deadwood to Dude, Where's My Car? And of course, our favorite, Storm Shadow. Yeah. Two questions. In your time, what did Hollywood get right and what did Hollywood get wrong? 
well, I'm, I'm, I'm really not qualified to answer that. But I mean, I think that uh, the trend now, like when, if you can recall, let's let's take something like Star Wars. There was no diversity in the beginning. You had blue people, you had green people, but you had no real people of color. And that was like, if you look at all the science fiction shows about like, like other planets and other universes, there's like never any people of color, and your people of color were going like, hey, wait a minute, in the universe there's no black people. So finally, like with Black Panther and with all these other things, finally it's evolving into something different. And when I say I've been an outsider, it's because I've been in the business so long and haven't been able to get into those generic shows. So now I'm finally able to, like I did Star Wars Rebels as Commander Sato when they started instituting those kinds of changes. Final level time here with guest of honor at the Robo Toy Fest 2021, Flint Dilly, known as the Games Master. Well, that was the title of my book. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that was really because of the G.I. Joe episode. But yeah, okay. I, I, I'll happily be known as Games Master. There it is. Uh, Twitter Ryo probably says it best. Uh, transmediologist, world builder, Argonaut, narrative alchemist, and sometimes simply just a designer and a writer. But you're also a legacy, too. Yes, that grandpa, would be true. Yeah. Um, was the first person to syndicate comics and newspapers back in the 19-teens? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I, I think that may be true. I, I, I had not heard that, so I couldn't uh, testify to it, but that, that is very possible. He was certainly doing it in the 19-teens. Mm. You've worked on properties like Garbage Pail Kids? Yep. Which, of course, I have to ask now your favorite Garbage Pail name. Oh, I, you know, it's really, I think Rustin Justin. I don't know why, because we had a guy named Justin that, you know, it's a friend of mine. But yeah, they probably. Yeah, that was not the high point of my career. It was really an embarrassing fail, but uh, it was an interesting fail, and it was the first time I ever tried to write pure comedy, which led into the next era, which was doing Tiny Tunes and Five of Us West. I think you just summed up my interview career. Oh, sorry. Uh, writer on Chronicles of Riddick, Butcher's Bay, uh, which is actually one of my favorite games on Xbox. Yeah. Yeah, wow, that's a that, that's a great one. It's too bad John John Zur Platten was here earlier. He was the guy I wrote it with. Uh, that was a great project. Did a lot of stuff with Ben in that period, but that was the first one. And uh, it was just one of those, you know, those magical projects that it came in. They had a script. Ben didn't approve the script, so they came to us and said. Can you fix this? This great producer, Kaz Lazarus. And then Pete Wannett was the producer. And Pete Wannett still produces stuff. And he's one of the best producers ever in the history of the game business. But he pitched, uh, you know, he pitched it to us. And he said, okay, here's how, here's how it's gonna work. You know, we can't see the script for the movie Riddick because they won't show it. Universal won't show it. Long after Ben kind of confessed they didn't really have one. But anyway, um, and uh, he said, so we're doing a prequel. It's called about Butcher Bay, because there's a reference in Pitch Black to the toughest slam in the world, Butcher Bay. So here's the story. It's, it's the wanted pitching it to us. And yeah, he's like the Jim Morrison of the game business. Anyway, so Wanted um, uh, says, okay, here's how it works. In the first scene, 
Where did it get captured and put in the butcher bag? Yeah. Final scene. Riddick escapes from Butcher Bay. You just have to figure out the middle scene. Nice. Okay, that, that was the pitch. And we did it, and we realized at a certain point that, you know, that this had to be interactive dialogue. You know, this, this had to be, you had to have choices and had to be an interactive, immersive world. And then we really had to, you know, think of it as a massive dungeon and approach it and design it that way. Because I've done a lot of, you know, D&D designs, right? Let me put you on the spot with that one. Being a designer of worlds, give me your three, don't have to be three, give me your top gaming worlds that you enjoy that you don't work on or did not. Oh, that I don't? Okay, so, well, I never technically worked on Warcraft. I did do D&D projects, so I can't use that. Uh, okay, so gaming worlds, that's that's really, that's really great. Uh, you want board games or, or computer games? You know, take it where you want to take it. Boy, that's a, that's a really great question. There's a couple and, that are going to put you on the spot. Oh, I know. Good. I, this I love interviews like this, but uh, you know, it'll I'll fumble around a lot, so you just have good editing machine. I would say that you know certainly um, that you know one of the most striking looking worlds I've ever seen was what's that. I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but the computer game is set in kind of a sort of a 50s, 1984 world. It's like, you know, Ayn An- An- Rand wrote it. I'm trying you know to what? If you're going to say Rapture from Bioshock? No, but it, but uh, Bioshock is... We would have accepted just, that answer. Yes, okay, yes. Yeah, Rapture from Bioshock. Okay, Bioshock had a look. Incredible. That it was just fabulous. Uh, so I, I would say Bioshock had, you know, certainly a world I like the look of. Worlds that I like the way they fit together. And let's say gaming worlds. You can't use Star Wars, you can't use Lord of the Rings, you can't use, I mean, it has to be a primary game project. Um, I would say, you know, okay, I'll give you some really sweet ones here. Jack and Daxter and uh, Sly Cooper. Yeah, I just love the kind of the version of where Paris or wherever it was, the Sly Cooper that we were in. You know, it was really, really kind of fabulous and it had a logic all its own. And it was a fun mix of different kinds of fantasies. I did not work on either of those projects. I did uh, a game called Uncharted later on with the guy that did uh, Jack and Daxter and numerous other things. So I'm a little bit biased, but I mean, I was, just, you know, that was when my kids were coming up. And so I was really aware of the world and I loved the value system of the world. Those will kind of lend themselves to, uh, to a whimsical side. You mentioned your kids. Let me let me also ask you this one because it's always on my mind. More immersive sci-fi worlds, Star Wars or Tron? Well, okay. Tron to me is there was a ton of potential in it that was never fully realized. Star Wars is as immersive a sci-fi universe as you could possibly get into. You know, I mean, now I, I and and I am not an expert in them. The Dan Simmons series. There are people who love that world, and 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 I like it. Frank Herbert's Dune world, for especially when it was made, was a great sci-fi world, and certainly influential to everything else that came after. 
someone called the Games Master, it's no surprise you're the creative lead at one of the world's biggest games, Pokemon Go. Yeah. Which, uh, I, got, I must say that me and my lady have spent hours running to gyms all around the Bay of Long Beach, so well done. Well, done. well bear in mind, I had nothing to do whatsoever with creating Pokemon. Okay, I mean, that was a bunch of Japanese people in the 90s or whatever that was. It was this weird period when I was neither doing that kind of entertainment and I didn't have kids yet. So, I mean, I just kind of missed it. I, I had a great deal to do, I, I think would be fair to say, with the protocols of geo-gaming. You know, and, uh, and you know, because I worked on a game called Ingress, which was kind of our other product before Pokemon. But wait, there's more. You also find yourself in good company on the regular. A friend of iconic creator Frank Miller, um, yeah. he made you uh, the, the lone Spartan to escape in the uh, worldwide blockbuster 300 named Dilios. Yeah, Dilios, yeah. Uh, Frank, who it's possible will show up later on today, I invited him. Nice. Uh, so if he suddenly comes walking in the door, you can, you know, he'll like correct everything I'm about to say. But yeah, no, I mean, okay, so there was a really interesting, let, let's talk about that from a totally bizarre angle. Let's, let's talk about that in terms of world war. Okay, because you know Frank wanted to do. Uh, you know, it goes back for the beginning of my book is Frank talking about. You know, I, we were trying to kill, figure out how to kill Optimus Prime, and he was trying to figure out how Superman and Batman could have a fight. Because he was writing The Dark Knight at that moment, and we were writing the Transformer movie. But Steve Gerber introduced us. We knew both of us, and he just, Frank had just moved to L.A. But anyway, and he says at one point, you know, I was saying, you know, I want Optimus's death. You know, in like Davy Crockett and John. Wayne's album. And Frank said, have you ever seen a movie called uh, 300 Spartans? And I said, no. And he proceeds to pitch 300 Spartans when he was a kid and watched it because he was about, Frank's a little bit younger than I am. But, uh, well, you know, he saw that at about the same, I think he's like 11 months younger. He'd act like he's 20 years younger, but that's not entirely true. Anyway, so uh, Frank, uh, uh, you know, starts, starts pitching the 300 Spartans. Cut to a decade later. We're on a boat. It's my wife, Frank's wife uh, at the time, Lynn Varley, who's also, you know, arguably the best colorist in the history of comics. Uh, and my wife, Terry. And Terry and I had been working on a thing that never happened, but it was a multimedia Odyssey game. But, you know, doing the Odyssey as a video game where, you know, they, yeah, complicated. But anyway, Frank called. I was the only ancient history major I knew, and we were best friends. So he called up and he said, hey, you want to go on an academic cruise through the Greek islands? And it's like, yeah, how do you say no to that? You know. And Terry and I were on way in England at that point. And so we went from England over to Greece, got on the academic cruise, and it's this very small boat. Okay, I mean, it'd be like a really big fishing boat, you know? I mean, there are probably 25, 30 people on it. And there are a few people actually sailing on it. Then there were mostly professors and archaeologists and ancient history. Remember, I was an ancient history major in, oh, we'll in college. Yeah. So, uh, no, ancient history. For a totally impractical, worthless major, it made my life. So anyway, we, that could be its whole, its whole sub-theme of the conversation. But that particular day, it led me to the Aegean, and Frank and Lynn and Terry and I rode around, I think it was two, two weeks. And I mean, most of the time, I was like sick as a dog. Uh, I just had some really bad, you know, you know, 
viral thing. And uh, but th that did not stop us from thoroughly enjoying ourselves. And so we went around, and you know, Frank was looking for stuff. And, and at one point, we found a real Spartan sculpture, which are extremely rare. I mean, Spartans didn't leave much behind. I mean, they weren't the Athenians. They didn't leave. They didn't do it work in rock. Their houses were wood. Um, and so when they left, there's not much left of Sparta. However, there's this one statue. The statue wasn't, you know, that much. It was about the same size of stuff you'd buy here at you know, Robotcon. And uh, it was a Spartan soldier, kind of like... This intel has been deemed privileged by Cobra Command. Frank just said, all right, that's what it looks like. I mean, he, he, he kind of did a lot of stuff. But they were the, the, the level, and here's what people don't understand about Frank, is the amount of research that he does. By the time he was done with 300, he was... You know, I'm certainly a qualified expert in, in you know, hoplite, you know, Greek warfare. So we just we just absorbed, you know, and we we're like a couple children. I mean, people think of Frank as this very serious guy and all that, you know. Incredible. But we were, we were like walking around wilting each other's shoes. He's putting kick me signs on my back, you know. It's, it was like that kind of trip. And then Lynn, his wife, I remember we had like a three-hour conversation about the color orange um, while we're watching the sunset over the Aegean, talking about all the different shades of orange. He's a colorist, right? Nobody else in the world would be interested in talking about orange for three hours, but we did it. Well, the feathers in your cap don't stop there. Legend is Hasbro wooed you to work on G.I. Joe by naming a character after you, Flint. Yeah, I, okay. That may or may not be true. I choose I choose to believe that story. That's what Tom Griffin and Joe Bacall were telling me when they were trying to hire me. You have to take the job. We named a character after you. It's like, good, I'm with that. And I certainly did everything I could to promote him. I'm holding, for those of you without cameras, I'm holding a Flint uh, bath soap uh, I have on the table with a bunch of miscellaneous objects I found in my house. I've talked to many folks that have worked on the Sumbo series, mostly on the actor side. But uh, it, it seems like they were pretty tight-knit. Having worked on 50-plus episodes in that series, what do you have to do right when you're writing G.I. Joe? What do you have to get right? Well, I mean, what I'll say for me personally with G.I. Joe, I've never had a project come more easily. I mean, Transformers would be a very different story. But, but I'm not saying one's better than the other, but one was... G.I. Joe, I just like... That just like came out of my pores, okay? I mean, it was your quintessential 80s Reagan era show, you know, and, and that was a happy era. I mean, forget, leave the political issue out of this. It was, it was a really fun, happy period where everybody was having fun. And with G.I. Joe, Steve Gerber and I, remember Steve was a comic book writer first, and he, you know, he created uh, Howard the Duck. He was a very funny guy, but you know he. he had, but he was also an animation writer. Co-created co uh, Thundar with Joe Ruby, who himself co-created Scooby-Doo, and was our boss. But anyway, so Steve and I viewed GI Joe, and and all of the. Here's the deal: all of the elements were there. You know, in Ron Friedman's original miniseries, and and what of that was Ron, and what of that was Joe Bacall, and what of it was Tom Griffin, and what of it was Jay, Jay Bacall, I'll never know. But I mean, it was just there. But by the time I got there, we were on. They'd done the miniseries, and then we were on like episode. I, the first episode I remember editing was The Germ by Roger Slifer. But I may have edited an earlier one, earlier ones. That's just the first one where I remember it. 
And you know, and we realized pretty quickly we've got to go science fiction, and you know, we've got to go a little bit fantasy. And both Steve and I wanted to go. You know, we're huge James Bond and Prisoner fans. Okay, I mean, those, those things shaped us. You know, I mean, you know, and you know, we absolutely so you could you had an incredibly wide range of episodes to do. Now, I was a story editor and a producer. You know, now you call it a showrunner by the, when, by the time they hired. Actually, I started out ghost story editing for Steve, and then they hired me. That was the conversation. And, you know, it, it, the show just to me was really easy. I was saying the, the only times I'd really write episodes if something went wrong with an episode and we needed one really fast. So pretty much everything I wrote was probably written within 48 hours. But I was, I, first of all, I just utterly grokked G.I. Joe. And second of all, I, uh, I you know, I, I yeah, had the same sensibilities as Steve. And, you know, so it was, it was just easy to do. And I always felt like I wanted to do fun episodes that violated the template. Well, it appears all roads lead to uh, Robo Toy Fest, as you are the guest of honor. But nobody gets here alone. I suppose as we get near the end, uh, raise a glass to a mentor, a partner, somebody that helped you get here. Oh, well, I mean, I've already mentioned a lot of them. Okay, I mean, let's just start. From the very beginning of my career, Joe Ruby. After that, throw in Steve Gerber and Buzz Dixon. Uh, you know, after that, throw in uh, Gary Gygax and you know, Luke and Ernie as kids. After that, and you know, I mean, I crossed paths with a lot of people in that period, like both Stanley and Jack Kirby, who I didn't work with as much, but certainly worked with. And you learn little bits and bits and pieces from them. George Lucas, I did it when I was doing droids. It's kind of a disastrous experience, but I sure as hell learned a lot from it. Later, Steven Spielberg, when I was doing Fievel. I mean, this is a long list, but I really, like every one of those people, Rob Fulop on games, uh, all the TSR guys, Jim Ward and TSR guys on the designing games. Mike Becker. Uh, I can go on for about two hours, but but yeah, and I haven't even gotten. I'm, I'm not even to the mid '90s yet. You know, I, I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's quite a tapestry. Yeah. There is but one more skeleton in the closet. An episode you wrote for GI Joe aired mid-December 1985. I believe on the Knowing is Half the Podcast, cheers guys, uh, you said that that was an episode that resonated with you. Uh, care to say what? Yeah, I mean, okay, I, and I just rewatched Skeleton in Skeletons in the Closet for the first time, like, within the last year, somewhere during COVID. And maybe before that, because uh, I, I think I may have watched it for when I was writing the book. But uh, Skeletons in the Closet, uh, I, if you if you were to take I, what I love about the, about the GI Joes that I wrote personally and just wrote, if you were to take everything I like and throw it into one script, it'd be Skeletons in the Closet. In that, it's a Lovecraft story, it's a spy story, and you got a spooky old mansion. Uh, you've got weird backstories. You have military stuff. You have a kind of romance with Flynn and Lady J. And of course, yeah, Marissa Paraborn was first conceived in that episode, but we, we left that scene. Well, you mentioned the foe, uh, that being your Lovecraftian phase. It's, it's kind of a tentacled creature uh, in the bottom of a well. 
you say Lovecraftian, it feels a fair bit more elemental to me. Uh, perhaps it's the squid that gets dropped on New York in Watchmen. Perhaps it's the striped chin on Thanos. Uh, and maybe even it's, maybe it's Starro from the new James Gunn movie, who knows. Everybody's got their favorite apocalyptic tale. Being a ancient history major slash classic rhetoric. Yeah, classical rhetoric. Yeah. What's what's your favorite tale about the apocalypse? Uh, well, real quick on that, the thing the thing that will make you understand Skeletons in the Closet and the Games Master, for that matter, is both of them were written in my office in the Dungeon and Dragon Entertainment Company mansion, which was in fact a converted stable in a mansion built by a filmmaker named King Vidor. Uh, okay, and owned at that moment by either Barbara Streisand or Richard Harris, we never knew for sure. But the point is, it was written literally in our D&D design room. So, tell us about that. T apocalyptic tale. I know, that's the next one I put you on the spot. Oh, okay, the stand. You know, if, I, mean, I, if, if I had to pick something, you know, I mean, I, I started reading that, like, my parents were living in Carmel, and I started reading it in the morning before I went to driving down to LA where Highway 46 meets the 5. Okay, that's where you cut over from the 101. Sounds like an episode of the Californians, right? Uh, yeah, uh, right in the middle of it, there's a monument to James Dean at Colomay, where he was at his fatal accident. So you drive by the James Dean Memorial marker, and then there's a Denny's right at Lost Hills. I stopped in the Denny's, and it was probably like late morning, right? The sun was going down as I left, and I've been reading the stand the whole time. Wow. At the time, I think I had lunch and dinner there. I, you know, it was one of those degenerate periods in my life when I was in no hurry to get anywhere. And yeah, that was the best. I mean, you know, I, I mean, yeah, you know, everybody from Bruce Springsteen to you know, whatever, and it wasn't really Bruce Springsteen. But yeah. Well, you know, they say those summertime colds are the worst all time. Yep. At the end of the episode in Skeletons of the Closet, Destro says, you better hope you never have to see the consequences of your actions. The way the world's acting right now, you think we might? Boy, I don't know. I mean, boy, do we find, I mean, it's funny, it's funny that I'm sitting here at this exact moment at this convention, I'm in the 80s, and I'm realizing I'd rather be there. <laughs> this is a suck of a period. You know, I mean, what I love about it is, yeah, people are still wearing masks, but they ditch them at every opportunity. You know, this is a, an ugly end to an ugly period, and I hope something really good's coming. And I, and I think something really good is coming. I guess the greatest mystery is that, uh, why am I, why me? Why am I lucky enough to have had all this stuff? Sometimes I say this, it takes skills to get lucky. I don't often get to talk to an esteemed member of the Dharma Initiative, so I have to ask this question. Your time on the island, Doctor, did you ever figure out why the sky went purple? Well, did you ever think that uh, maybe I made the sky go purple? Nice one, <laughs> nice one. Uh, if you'd be so kind, I don't know if, I, if you recall, Pleasure chatting, Francois. Thank you. Thank you. Can Chris. you uh, send us off with that Dharma videotape exit? All right, here we go. You ready? Yeah. On behalf of myself and all of us here at the Dharma Initiative, congratulations. Namaste and good luck.